Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where the people behind world-changing research share their insights and ideas. This time, we're finding out how a 2,000-mile endurance rowing event called GB Row supported the search to map ocean health and pollution. Just the idea that, that you were going to be on these rowing boats rowing away there could be a whale underneath you and you might not know about it but afterwards we're going to pick it up probably from the sound and we could well pick it up through its DNA there. I'm Dr Fekel Theodor. I'm a reader in biogeochemistry and environmental pollution at the University of Portsmouth. Faye has a passion for understanding how pollution impacts the biology, geology and chemistry of environments and the lives of the animals that exist within them. In this episode, she explains how a competitive event taking place around the choppy UK coastline is offering exciting insights into the biodiversity of these marine environments, whilst gathering data to help in the fight against climate change. The wind picked up pretty suddenly. The waves were coming from all directions. DNA in here includes everything from the bacteria and the microbes, which can tell us about pollution and the condition of, of ecosystems, all the way up to whales and dolphins and fish and all of the sort of wildlife. So we can look at biodiversity through loads of different lenses through this one really simple sampling method. That's one of the GB Row teammates. Dr. Kat Bruce explaining how DNA gathered from the UK oceans is able to give us insights into the health of these ecosystems. But how does this kind of science connect to the rowing event that launched last summer across the UK? Dr. Faye Cothero explained how this collaboration was born. The people who organised the row, GB Row, they came to the University of Portsmouth because they thought that they could do something more while they were doing it, like rowing 2,000 miles isn't enough, they decided that they wanted to do something even bigger than just that. And they spoke to us about what they could possibly collect, what data they could collect that would be useful to us. And so we had a chat with them. We looked at the boats. That was a really big thing. We can't just collect anything. These boats have to go all the way around the UK, probably around 30 days often, without touching shore. They can't bring on any more batteries. They can't bring on um, any more water. So we had to be really clear about what was feasible for them to collect. And we came up with microplastics, environmental DNA and underwater sound. Microplastics are tiny fragments of plastics that exist in the environment. They're a result of the breakdown of products and waste and can be harmful to ocean and aquatic life, which is why it's so alarming that vast amounts of plastics are dumped into the ocean as pollution every year. Fay works within the School of Civil Engineering and Surveying here at the University of Portsmouth, but it is her specialism in pollution that drove her to focus on microplastics for her research. I really look at microplastics everywhere. They are everywhere. So the ones that we can't see are in the air and they're in the sea. So we need to use microscopic techniques to look for those. They go all the way up to five millimetres. So at five millimetres, you can see them. And unfortunately, these are often in the size range of feeding for, for a lot of fish. So they are all the way through, all the different size regions are having a negative impact on our marine environment. There's been quite a bit of literature about food around the sea, the, the fish in the sea and it coming back to us on our dinner plates. But I'd like to point out to those people who go, oh, well, we don't eat fish, so it's fine. Unfortunately, the number of microplastics that are not in the sea 
is huge as well. There, there are actually more microplastics probably in our soils and in our air than there are in our sea. So, so if you're worried about what's in the sea, you should also be worried about what's in the air and in the soil. So yes, it can get back from the marine environment to us, but the way it's getting into the marine environment is from us on land, and we're also breathing it in and eating it from other areas as well. Unlike on traditional marine research vessels, the GB Row participants are an agile collective of rowers who are able to take science into their own hands, all whilst navigating a choppy and changeable water race. That meant the team at Portsmouth had to rethink the traditional data gathering technique, which brought some real benefits too. Normally you need a large boat and you need these huge nets that you put out and you trawl you know, the water behind the boat. So you get a lot of water through the nets, but by necessity, that means the holes in the nets are quite big because they'd break otherwise. So they tend to look at things above 0.3 millimetres, which is great. We're still getting lots of data from that, but they're obviously very, very expensive to go out on a big ship and do this. These guys were rowing, so we weren't paying them anything to do this, which was very, very, very good. It was very kind of them to, to collect the data. But we designed an actual n- new pump system so that they could pump the water while they were rowing and collect much smaller plastics so we can see a bigger range from what we would normally see. Alex Mayer works for Harwin and was an engineer on the GB Row project. He explained the box that attaches to the rowing boat to store the equipment and avoid contaminants entering the samples. I had to go about engineering a custom setup. So we've got an all-metal inlet feeding into a filter system, which then runs through the pump and the flow meter. When the pump runs at the same time every day, be able to tie that in with the GPS, see exactly where we took the samples. Another angle the project decided to focus upon was noise. Why? Because the sounds of an environment can also build up fascinating insights into what's really happening there, hidden beneath the waves. This was measured using something called a hydrophone attached to the boat rudders. I was already working with the Institute of Cosmology and Gravitation for other projects. And whilst I was working with them, I was speaking to Andy Lundgren and he mentioned that what he does as an astrophysicist is look at noise. So he looks at space and they have these huge data sets where they're looking for very small variations in sound to make them understand, well, the universe. So I said, well, could you do that in the sea for me? <laughs> yeah, he said, yes, he, he didn't see why not. We, we got some trial data and he immediately found some dolphin sounds, uh, looked at the harmonics and the sort of soundscape that was there. And I said, could you do that if we got a soundscape for the entirety of the UK coastline? And that's what they're working on at the moment with us. The hydrophone where it was going to sit within the boat. So this is for the underwater noise. So it's actually, at the moment, part of the rudder. And there was a lot of work that went into how we could protect the hydrophone, but without having something sticking out that was going to affect the the ability of the boat to perform well as as a race. So what sounds were the team actually able to gather last year? And what mysteries did the Institute of Cosmology and Gravitation unveil when scanning the sound files? They left from Tower Bridge in London, so it's pretty noisy along the Thames Estuary, as you would expect. It's really uncomfortable, actually, to listen to the sound. So if you put some headphones on, rather than just listening to it you know, through a mobile device or something, you put some headphones on, you really start to feel how uncomfortable it must be for the, the animals living in the sea, that constant noise. And it's at a very low 
frequency which, which sort of almost resonates. It feels uncomfortable to listen to. But also we found some interesting things, lots of dolphins, lots of whales, which is great. The rowing teams may have been more focused on catching data and winning the race to think about the research analysis that would be taking place months afterwards. Not only does a journey like that require enormous strength and endurance, surely you have to have a real passion for the purpose to even attempt it. What sort of person rows 2,000 miles in a month and decides to take on world-changing science at the same time? I think they found it really rewarding. Everybody is being great about having to give up the very small amount of time that they have to sleep and making that even smaller so that they can swap out filters or collect samples for us. I mean, these guys are often sleeping in three-hour shifts and then rowing for three hours and then they eat and do everything else they can in the next three hours and then they sleep again. So it's really, really tough mentally for them. And the fact that they've agreed to just keep going, changing the filters when we, when, when we need to, we have tried to make it as simple as possible for them they're already under great stress doing this kind of endurance work that we're trying to make it as simple as possible. But they've been really engaged and many of them have still kept in touch. They're still waiting to find the data. You know, they've been really excited. So we have a little WhatsApp group that we've kept in contact on and I upload things sometimes to that. It's maybe some dolphin noises and say, oh, did you know this is what they sounded like when you went past them on such and such a day, which they they seem to be really engaged with. I, I think they've really enjoyed it and certainly... This isn't a one-off. We are doing this for four years. So we've had one race. We've got another three races to go with GB Row. And I think the people who are coming to do this next year, it's really important to them. And I think as more people understand what we're trying to do, the science is really taken on a life of its own. Because of the huge amount of data gathered, work is still ongoing to analyse just what soundscapes can tell us about the oceans. But what conclusions have researchers been able to draw so far upon the scale of our microplastics problem? The microplastic data is going to be coming out soon. And we found that we are getting more microplastics per metre cubed of seawater than some of the previous studies. But that's because of that size difference. As I mentioned with the nets, they use the 0.3 millimetre. That's the, that's the smallest they can go. We're looking at 0.04 millimetres. So we're seeing a bigger range of sizes and therefore we're getting more microplastics. We're looking at the moment, as we might have expected, around sort of city areas, there there appear to be more. I'm waiting for some of the more, what we would consider pristine water data to come in. Ten years ago, we wouldn't have been able to look at some of the really small particles that we can now. And the methods that we use to detect them have, have really evolved. So it's quite difficult to to say but plastic doesn't degrade that is the problem with it it sticks around for a long time instead it's breaking up into these microplastics and because of that it can be inferred that the numbers are going up because we are producing more plastic and therefore more is getting in and none of it is is degrading away yet so my worry is as we get better at detecting them we are seeing more and more and more And what that means for our health going forward, the ocean and our own, is quite a concern. On top of sound profiles and microplastics data, to understand what's happening in our waters, the team also looked at eDNA, or environmental DNA. Faye explained. 
whilst they were rowing around collecting these microplastics and sound, they were also collecting environmental DNA, which tells us how biodiverse an area is. So it's a, a, an amount of water that goes through a filter. Any DNA in that water gets held on the filter and then is analysed. So it might have skin cells of dolphins or uh, whales or bacteria, pathogens, everything and anything in between. So if we start to find that uh, areas of high noise or high microplastics are coinciding with areas of low biodiversity, that's really important going forward as evidence for policy about there being needs for limits going forward. And that's hard because the sea doesn't stay still. It moves around. So if you emit microplastics at one place, that doesn't mean they'll stay there. They might end up in these pristine areas. Faye's concerned that the microplastics problem is directly linked to declining biodiversity in ocean ecosystems. Now that this research is beginning to give a more detailed insight into the scale of this pollution, she hopes that policymakers will sit up and take notice. What's more, the insights and technology developed on the inaugural GB Row collaboration also offer new approaches to science in other disciplines. The things that we've learned from GB Row, we can maybe use when we're looking at air pollution, particularly if we're going forward and looking at bacteria attached to them. So we've looked at how the species eat the plastic. And it turns out that if you feed plastic to an oyster, for example, they are pretty good at going, oh, that's plastic and, and not eating it <laughs> and pushing it to the side. But once it's been in the ocean for a while, it gets covered in this biofilm, all these bacteria grow on it, and then suddenly it smells quite appetising, then it smells more like food, and that's when they start to ingest it. So one of the things we've been working on is, is how to improve the ecotoxicology, the, the danger to the species, by making it more realistic and not just using plastics that we've bought, but you know leaving them in the water for a while so they collect this biofilm. Another thing we've been looking at is how much we're breathing in. So we're working with our local hospital at the Portsmouth Hospitals University Trust. We've been working with their respiratory people and clinicians to start to look at people with asthma and COPD and how they might be being impacted by the number of microplastics in the air. And putting heads together across the disciplines is essential in finding solutions to some of our planet's most complex and interconnected problems. In earlier episodes of Life Solved, We've heard from Professor Steve Fletcher and the team at Revolution Plastics, a movement formed at Portsmouth to find solutions to the global plastics crisis. Naturally, Faye thinks that being a part of this is one way to make sure the insights from GB Row data can be put to best use. I was already working in the field of microplastics, um, particularly because of my pollution background, looking at microplastics and how they move through sewage and are released into the environment. And then when the university started to try and bring together all of us who were working in this field of plastics, they came up with Revolution Plastics. And it's been a real help to be able to speak to people who are in fields that aren't mine, but they're also passionate about the same subject. In particular, the size difference. Most people are interested in the big plastics, you know, how, how to deal with big plastic waste. So speaking to them and saying, well, grinding it down is not great because <laughs> whilst you've reduced the volume you've increased the number of microplastics that's been really really helpful so so I think Revolution Plastics has really worked well to bring a group of different types of people together to try and work on the plastic problem whatever the size or shape of the plastic. And in terms of applying these learnings to other contexts other Portsmouth researchers are starting to build projects inspired by the GB Row experience. 
Alex Ford down at the Marine Biology Department has been working with a number of other other teams who who are interested in this sort of work. And I think it's so expensive to do marine work. It's really hard. We know very little about the marine environment because it's it's out of sight and it's that sort of out of sight, out of mind feel. But imagine if every single paddleboard, kayak, large ship, ferry had something like this and all this data was being collected, we would really get to know so much more. So I would encourage anyone who thinks this is interesting to look about how they could participate in something like this. Here's Professor Alex Ford now. We plan to make all the data fully available and I think as this race goes on multiple years, we will be able to build the educational programmes around what went on the year before. So when they're tracking you on your GPS the next year going round, we'll go, oh, well, we spotted that pod, pod of dolphins there last year. We heard them, we got their DNA. Do we need to look at that place in a little bit more detail? Do we need to get our regulatory authorities looking at that place <laughs> in a little bit more detail? We work very closely with our local water companies, so Southern Water in particular. They've given us access to a number of places. They are interested in knowing what's coming through the, the sewage. You know, they, they don't make the sewage, we do. <laughs> um, they are just processing it, if you like, before it goes out. So it's really key for them to understand what's coming in so that they can process it correctly. We've been working extensively with them and working on how we can maybe reduce the burden on the uh, environment that's coming through the wastewater treatment but also local areas, local governments, talk about farming and things like that, where there is still a lot of plastic use and we're starting to see that that's coming through in the food that we're eating now. If that's inspired you to raise a paddle in the name of science next year, you can find out more about GB Row on their website, gbrowchallenge.com. And later this month, Faye, Alex and the team will be revealing the first of their insights from the data analysis. You can follow that on the website at port.ac.uk forward slash research. Thanks for joining us for Life Sold. There's loads more research insights to be found on our website and you can also get news of the latest developments here at the university direct to your inbox. Just subscribe at port.ac.uk forward slash solve. We'll be back with another episode next Thursday. Catch you then.